0: Hello and welcome to this Musical Steps movie from the series of videos where I stroll around places associated with music artists and specific songs. Slightly different to previous videos though, for this particular episode, I'm going to spread the information across more than one movie. I'm doing this because I want to initially set the scene in the first of these episodes by talking about the UK pop charts at the beginning of the 1970s before then talking about a specific songwriter in the subsequent movie who was famous and unknown at the same time. His fame just depended on where you were in the world. So, before beginning the walk associated with the main subject of this Musical Steps video, the somewhat forgotten singer-songwriter Lally Stott from the Merseyside area of the UK, I want to spend time in this first episode putting into context how the UK pop charts looked half a century ago. This is to show how big a particular Lally Stott written song was at the start of the 1970s. By the way, the footage that you see here in this first episode is of the general area Lally Stock lived in before making his considerable fortune in Italy. So, let's consider the 1970s music scene. Just over 50 years ago, back in 1971, of the year's 52 available weeks, around five songs competed to sell the most records of that year. On the whole, the number ones of 1971 have stood the test of time, and still resonate with audiences when heard today. However, 1971 was bookended by what could be described as novelty number one songs. As the year began, from January 5th 1971, the comedy actor Clive Dunn had his overly sentimental and lyrically saccharine song Grandad at number one for three weeks. Though popular at the time, I think it's fair to suggest it's only now remembered by nostalgic audiences, thinking back to their youth. It's not considered a great song. And then, at the end of the year, the comedian Benny Hill reached number one on December the 7th for four weeks, with a comedy song called Ernie, the fastest milkman in the West. Again, it's a song only really fondly remembered through rose-tinted glasses, by some people that were young teenagers at the time. Right in the middle of the year, in June, was another song that reached the top spot, and was, perhaps incorrectly, regarded at the time as a novelty song too. And it's the writer of that song who is the main focus of this sequence of movies. We'll get back to that songwriter later. For now, to put into perspective what the UK music scene was like post-Beatles breakup, let's consider the UK charts in 1971. One artist that released music that year was the still relatively unknown David Bowie. Though Bowie had had a hit with Space Oddity two years before, he was regarded as a novelty act because of that song. Despite it being a success, it was regarded at the time as a novelty song and Bowie himself, by struggling to find a follow-up hit, had been written off as a one-hit wonder. Bowie was still struggling for further recognition in 1971 two years after Space Oddity. It wasn't until the following year, when his single Starman became one of two of the most talked-about songs of 1972, that he established himself as a serious artist with longevity. The other much-talked-about song of 1972 was Alice Cooper's School's Out. What Bowie and Alice had in common was image. Both realised audiences now wanted more than rock stars in jeans. In 1971, though, David Bowie had changed his name from David Jones and recorded his fourth album, Hunky Dory, between June the 8th and August the 6th, before it was released on the 17th of December. Hunky Dory was a different type of album for Bowie in terms of songwriting because he had written most of the songs on piano rather than on guitar, as he had done for his previous albums. Bowie didn't play piano, or at least not very much, on the album though. Instead, he got Rick Wakeman to play on Hunky Dory and most notably on Life on Mars. At the time, Bowie asked Wakeman to join his band. Rick Wakeman was the keyboard player at the time for a band called The Straubs, and had also been asked to join a new progressive rock band called Yes. Wakeman said no to Bowie, and yes to Yes. Despite Hunky Dory being regarded today as one of Bowie's best albums, it didn't sell well at the time because it didn't seem to contain any songs that could be hit singles. This is despite it containing songs such as Life on Mars and Changes. Hunky Dory as an album flopped, as did the single Changes that was released at the start of January 1972. Anyway, getting back to 1971, Mark Feld had also recently changed his name to Mark Bolan. His band T-Rex had two singles at number one a few months apart that year. Hot Love first and then, a couple of months later, Get It On or Bang-A-Gong as it was called in America. Owing to Bang-A-Gong being sexual slang, Boland's song was renamed Get It On for the UK market. And Get It On was a huge selling single in 1971, but it didn't sell quite as many as its predecessor, Hot Love. After its six-week run at number one, Hot Love racked up enough sales to become the fifth best-selling record of the year. Remember though, those were the days people had to leave their house and take a trip to a record shop to physically buy a copy of a vinyl record. The ease and comfort of clicking a buy now or play button on a mobile phone didn't exist. It can be asserted 1971 was the most important year for pop songwriting because it straddled the breakup year of the Beatles and the start of the careers of future icons of pop, such as David Bowie, Mark Bolan, Elton John, Slade, Mick Jagger and Michael Jackson, amongst others. Anyway, in the same year as Mark Bolan's two mega-selling singles, another icon, Rod Stewart, had the huge UK hit Maggie May" as winter approached in 1971. Stewart has subsequently said the song is partially biographical with lyrics and melody written by Rod to go with guitarist Martin Cotentin's chord sequence. Now I think it's fair to say Maggie May is still as popular today as it was in 1971, despite it being about Rod's conflicted emotions concerning his morally dubious first sexual encounter as a schoolboy with an older woman at the 1961 Bewley Jazz Festival in Hampshire. Oddly, despite the full song title being Maggie May. Only the name Maggie is ever used in the song. Perhaps Rod Stewart got the title from another song called Maggie Mae as Inspiration, made famous by the Beatles, seeing as that song is a traditional Liverpool folk song about a prostitute who robbed a homeward bounder, a sailor coming home from a round trip to America. Interestingly, Rod Stewart's huge number one hit Maggie Mae was originally released as the B-side of Reason to Believe. But, after audiences preferred it, UK radio stations began playing Maggie Mae instead, and Maggie Mae headed the UK charts for five weeks from October 9, 1971, and was one of the biggest-selling singles of that year. As a side note, guitarist and joint composer of Maggie Mae, Martin Quittenton, sadly later suffered mental health issues that led him to leave the music business and move to Anglesey for a more peaceful lifestyle. In fact, Martin had originally turned down the offer of joining Rods Band the Faces when Maggie May became a huge hit in 1971 because he didn't like their raucous rock and roll lifestyle. Speaking of a raucous rock and roll lifestyle, also in 1971, the Rolling Stones had their controversial hit Brown Sugar in the charts with its references to slavery and misogyny seemingly overlooked at the time. Interestingly, Brown Sugar had a slow burn gestation period before it became a best-selling hit. It had been recorded around 18 months earlier, in December 1969. But owing to legal difficulties, it wasn't released as a 45 until April 1971 as the first single from the band's album Sticky Fingers. Though Brown Sugar only reached number two in 1971, it spent such a long time in the charts it racked up massive sales. Enough combined sales, in fact, to compete with other hits that did get to number one that year. Incidentally, Brown Sugar was kept off the top spot by Knock Three Times by a trio called Dawn, another slow-burn song recorded and originally released in November 1970. Knock Three Times is a further example of a song that sounds facile and innocuous until the lyrics are studied more closely. Anyway, as you'll appreciate then, Record companies sometimes did allow songs and artists to develop at the start of the 1970s, even if the songs didn't appear to initially recoup the financial amount invested in them by record labels. By the way, though credited to the long-established Rolling Stones writing partnership of Jagger and Richards, Brown Sugar was written entirely by Mick Jagger, lyrics and music. Yes, Keith Richards did add his infamous guitar riff to Jagger's chord structure. It didn't matter, though, because Mick and Keith, like Lennon and McCartney before them, had made an agreement between themselves that all their songs, regardless of who wrote it, would get shared songwriting credits. As people started to question the lyrical theme of Brown Sugar, Jagger adapted and softened his controversial words over the decades during live performances. Incidentally, speaking of songwriting credits, The Rolling Stones' later single, from 1974, It's Only Rock and Roll But I Like It, had actually been written by Ronnie Wood at a jam session at his mansion in Richmond that Mick Jagger, amongst others, had attended and sung on. Other songs were worked on too, but none were as good as It's Only Rock and Roll. The basic rhythm track had been laid down by members of Rod Stewart's band The Faces, including Ronnie Wood and drummer Kenny Jones during a jam session with Jagger, David Bowie and bassist Willie Weeks. Apparently, Jagger liked the song so much he took the recording of the basic jam track to Keith Richards, who then later added guitar overdubs, and after some marginal tidying up, it was released in pretty much the same state as it had been recorded by the faces Jagger and Bowie at the original jam session. Keith Richards told his close friend Ronnie Wood he'd taken the precaution of removing Wood's guitar parts, though. Furthermore, because Wood was still part of Rod Stewart's The Faces, Keith told Ronnie he was now claiming authorship of the song, but Ronnie could have authorship of other songs recorded with Jagger at that particular jam session. That kind of songwriting horse trading was common practice in the 1970s. Bowie frequently did this too. On his 1975 album Young Americans, an unknown at the time session singer called Luther Vandross was called in to help with vocal arrangements. It's been claimed over the years that Vandross sold a few songs to Bowie for his Young Americans album for a flat fee, though with no songwriting credit, and this allowed Bowie to claim all the royalties for those songs. Anyway, back to the 1971 UK singles charts, George Harrison had his first post-Beatles single My Sweet Lord heading the British charts after its initial American release in November 1970. My Sweet Lord became the first number one single by an ex-Beatle though Harrison originally gave the song to fellow Apple Records artist and Beatles contributor Billy Preston for him to record. Interestingly, Harrison didn't want to release his own version of My Sweet Lord as a single in the UK. However, public demand after constant radio airplay in Britain led to a belated UK release on the 15th of January 1971, and it went on to become the biggest selling single of 1971 in the UK and justified the latitude afforded to it by the record company. Though, to be fair, it was George Harrison they were dealing with. An ex-Beatle would likely be given a lot of time to get a song off the ground and become a hit. In Britain, My Sweet Lord entered the charts at number 7, before hitting number 1 on the 30th of January 1971, and remaining there for five weeks. Incidentally, it was well known at the time by record companies, sales of records were much higher in the winter months than the summer months. It was a little easier to get to number one in the summer months, because artists didn't need to sell as many records that week. Remember, people had to physically go to record shops to buy the songs they liked. During the summer months, the record-buying public was generally on holiday and didn't therefore buy vinyl records to keep in their holiday suitcase for a couple of weeks before returning home to their record players. The charts worked by counting up who had sold the most amount of singles each week. It didn't roll over. Each week the song started again at zero, regardless of how many had been sold the previous week. So for My Sweet Lord to remain at number one during winter, in January and February, when the public was at home, it meant it had to sell a huge amount of records every week. Interestingly, despite the song's title, the words to My Sweet Lord were initially regarded negatively as merely repetitious and perhaps meaningless. Only a little later did critics understand and appreciate Harrison's deeper mystical meaning. Speaking of the Beatles, Lennon's post-Beatles signature song, Imagine, taken from his album of the same name, was recorded between May and July 1971. Therefore, it might seem strange initially not to see Imagine in the UK Singles Chart for 1971. The reason for this is because the song was only issued as a single in Britain in 1975, where it reached number 6 on the UK Singles Chart that year. It did later get to number 1, following its release after Lennon's murder in 1980. Anyway, all those songs just discussed a moment ago, Hot Love, Maggie May, My Sweet Lord, etc., are still as popular today, if not more so, as they were back in 1971. As I mentioned a moment ago, though, there was another song competing for the year's top spot, too. That song was called Chirpy Chirpy Cheep Cheep, and it dominated the UK's top position for five weeks over the summer of 1971 and sold hundreds of thousands of copies during its chart run. Lyrically, the song initially seems quite vacuous. But, bearing in mind 1971 saw the emergence of great singer-songwriters that regarded lyrics equally as important as the melody, it could be argued there is a darker meaning to the lyrical content of Chirpy Chirpy Cheap Cheap. The song opens with the frequently repeated question, Where's your mama gone, little baby Don? Before we are given the answer, she's gone far, far away. And to compound this, we learn Papa has also abandoned Baby Don. He too has gone far, far away. This massive 1971 number one version of Chirpy Chirpy Cheap Cheap had been recorded by a Scottish folk pop band called Middle of the Road in Italy the year before in 1970, whilst they had been touring there. The band found themselves touring Italy because they couldn't get a record contract in the UK. They seemed to be a good live attraction, but they hadn't got a song, they hadn't got a hit, that record companies deemed worthwhile investing in them at that particular time, prior to Chirpy Chirpy Cheep Cheep. The drumbeat-driven groove, minimal instrumentation, simple verse and chorus construction, and a chord and repeat chant for the song's choruses caught the attention of teenage audiences throughout the world, though it too had a slow burn start before it was a hit in the UK. Also, despite Chirpy Chirpy Cheep Cheep seemingly being a lyrically simple song, debate has continued about its true meaning. Some suggest it is simply about a caged parrot, while others point to the lyrical content clearly indicating a darker theme of child abandonment. I think the minimal amount of lyrics contained in the song makes it hard to definitely decide its meaning either way. One thing is for certain, though, if the words are about child abandonment, it's in lyrical juxtaposition to a very upbeat, positive musical backing and melody line. But that kind of music and lyrical juxtaposition is not uncommon in pop. It's an effective and quite common songwriting technique that the song's writer would have been aware about. Anyway, despite recording it and having a huge 1971 hit, Middle of the Road didn't actually write Chirpy Chirpy Cheep Cheap." Singer, songwriter, and record producer Harold Lally Stott from the Northwest England town of Prescott wrote it. So that's the musical backdrop to Chirpy Chirpy Cheap Cheap and the 1971 UK singles chart in general. We'll look at Lally Stott's story next in the second episode of this musical step sequence of movies.